If we had to title this, I suppose it is the psalm about the righteous man. It is the description of the blessedness of the man who, in verse 1, fears God and delights, and we would think that would involve obedience and keeping the commandments of God. It is similar, at least in form, to the one we looked at last week. It is an alphabetical psalm, meaning that each verse, in fact, again, instead of one verse, where we have one verse, there's really two verses uh, corresponding to the 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet. So you begin the first verse with a word that begins with Aleph, second word verse begins with Bet, Bet and so forth, Gemel, and so forth down the line, the Hebrew alphabet. Uh, so again, it is probably a psalm that many children would memorize. It would help them with their ABCs or their alphabet, whatever, uh, if you're in Hebrew. And uh, no doubt many of them would copy this from time to time. Uh, well, let's look at it. Let's look at the list of things that are said to be the, the blessing that falls upon the man. And notice his description. He fears God. He delights in God's commandment. Verse 2 says his seed shall be mighty upon the earth. And the couplet is very similar. The generation of the upright shall be blessed. Generation meaning the offspring. This is speaking of the righteous man's children, that they are mighty and they are blessed in the earth. Okay. Verse 3 speaks of health and wealth, or wealth and riches in this case, that befall the man who is blessed. Uh, his righteousness, it says, endures forever. Then verse 4, interesting thing here, unto the upright there ariseth light in the darkness. Uh, what, what does light symbolize in Scripture? Truth? Well, yeah, purity to some extent. Well, yes, Jesus. But in general, when I say I want a little light on this subject, what am I asking for? I'm asking for knowledge, information, wisdom. Truth has that feel. So notice here that the righteous man has as his due that there arises to him light in the midst of darkness. In other words, darkness would indicate don't know what you're doing, don't know which way to go, don't know which way to turn. But for the righteous man, light arises in the darkness. And notice the description of him being gracious, full of compassion and righteous. And then notice verse 5, a good man show a favor and lendeth. Uh, notice he's not in the borrowing business, he's in the lending business. Uh, he guides his affairs with discretion, that is his uh, activities, his business acumen are, are profound. And then six, surely he shall not be moved forever. Now, what do you mean he won't be moved? Uh, you didn't, won't ever rent a U-Haul? Uh, what's he talking about, not being moved? What do you think? What? Stable. Exactly. He'll never be moved off his point of reference here, as opposed to those that are of constantly being blown to and fro by every wind of doctrine. You remember that phraseology? So here's a man who's stable. We would say this guy is a, 
uh, pillar of his community. He's a solid, upright citizen. Um, he's, his heart is fixed. I like that. Fixed. Not fixed opposed to broken. That he had a broken heart and that got fixed. But it's fixed in the sense, again, of immovable. His heart is stayed. Sometimes the Psalms use that language. Blessed is the man who stays himself upon the Lord. That is, he's fixed as far as his devotion, as far as his trust and faith. Verse 8, along those same lines, his heart is established. The same, notice that for several verses here, we've had the idea of not being moved or being fixed. And here the idea of being established, all of those different synonyms for the same things. And notice, he shall not be afraid until he sees his desire upon his enemies. Uh, He will not be the one who is wiped out. He's not the one who's carried off. Uh, His enemies will be overcome. We'll say more about them in just a second. And then verse 9, notice that he is dispensing or dispersing. The idea is, is that he is a giver. He is uh, one who is uh, uh, giving alms. He's giving uh, gifts to the poor. And so his righteousness endures forever. His horn shall be exalted with honor. Uh, one's horn in the Old Testament lingo, speaking of an animal with a horn being lifted up, speaks of his power. And so notice the man is um, exalted in the earth. And then verse 10, the wicked, his enemies, uh, interesting way they are described here. They see this. They see the righteous man being blessed. They see him being established, unmovable. And uh, they don't like it. They're grieved. Uh, It says they gnash with their teeth. I'm thinking of hell described as weeping and gnashing of teeth. I'm not sure what gnashing of teeth. Um, We have the description of Stephen stoning that the people became so angry they gnashed at him with their teeth and they think that means a clicking sound like that, that. I don't know. But in any way, in this context, gnashing is a uh, sign of agitation and, and trouble. And so the wicked gnash and melt away and the desire of the wicked shall perish. Notice we have just one verse there that speak of the opposing party. Uh, This man who is righteous prevails. This man is steadfast. His enemies, on the other hand, are defeated, conquered in misery. So there we have it, Psalm 112, a picture of the righteous man, the complete man, the man that's got it all, blessed of God, got the world by the tail, health and wealth, kids always doing right, And I looked at this psalm and said, yeah, unless your name is Job. (laughs) Isn't it interesting that how the righteous man is described in verse 1 is almost identical to the description we have of Job in Job chapter 1. Job was a man, a righteous man, a just man who feared God and eschewed evil. Exactly the description that we have here. Clearly... What is being described here is uh, the ideal. It's what we would like to believe is always the case. 
but it clearly doesn't quite jive with what we might call the world in which you and I live. In our world, kids don't always turn out right. In our world, health and wealth don't always befall the righteous and the good man. In our world, the righteous are often prey for the wicked. They're often carried away, that is, into captivity or some sort of bondage. Um, They don't always come out on top. In fact, the wicked don't always grieve and gnash their teeth uh, at the plight or at the, the blessing that falls upon the righteous man. Often the wicked rejoice in the fact that they are victorious. Over the weekend. So, so we got a question here. I, I wanted to sort of rush through the psalm to acquaint you with it and then just ask some rather probing questions. Is this true? How should we think of this psalm? Now, one answer could be, and uh, it is my old friend Tom Smith used to say that Ninety percent of life is covered by the book of Proverbs. The industrious man gets ahead, the slothful man doesn't. Good man, the honest man prospers, the liar and the cheat doesn't. Ninety percent of life is covered by the book of Proverbs. The other ten percent is covered by the book of Job and the book of Ecclesiastes. You do realize that the book of Ecclesiastes is very similar to the book of Job in that Solomon, this wise king, is befuddled and vexed because it doesn't always turn out the way we think it ought to. He said, I've seen princes walking and beggars on horseback. I've, in other words, it's not always what we think ought to happen in life happening, and that's what Solomon's dealing with Ecclesiastes. In fact, I ran into a theory in my study on the book of Job that Solomon wrote the book of Job. I don't think that's possible. I uh, don't think it's clear, but, uh, but I see why they think that, because the book of Ecclesiastes is dealing with exactly the same thing. So perhaps... We could explain this psalm by saying, well, for the majority of the case, this works out this way, but not in every case. In other words, it is proverbially true. It is not an inviolable law of the universe that it's always going to work out this way. I'm saying that's one answer. I didn't say it's a good answer. I just said that's one answer. Anybody else have any ideas here? I'm, you know, I'm open to suggestions. Do you, do you, you do understand the problem in that this is the description, this is exactly what we would like it to be in life. This is how we'd like things to turn out. Uh, it's the way we think they're supposed to turn out. But all of us are pretty much aware that it doesn't always work this way. Uh, Janet? And therein lies one answer, is that, wait a minute, this life is not the end of the story. That you say, well, wait a minute, life doesn't turn out like this. But you're only looking 
at part of the story. Uh, I don't want to give away uh, my ammunition on Job, but we're going to be dealing probably not this Sunday, but Sunday week, Lord willing, when we look at the last chapter of Job, how he is restored and how he's given back twice as much as he had in the first place, we'll be talking about the whole area of rewards because I've had a number of people ask me, well, wait a minute, isn't this sort of quid pro quid here that we are uh, uh, doing, we're suffering now in order to gain eternal reward? And we'll, we'll try to deal with that uh, at some length. I think there is... Um, uh, some things to see there. And clearly, one answer here is that, wait a minute, it may not look this way right now for the righteous man, but if we wait till the end, the description here is exactly the end result of the righteous man. That means, wait a while. Things may seem out of kilter for the moment. And that implies that we're dealing with a heavenly description rather than an earthly description. Man may be poor as a church mouse in this world, in this life. I um, was acquainted with the story of um, called The Mercies of a Covenant God about an old English preacher that lived about 1800 and uh, a remarkable man, uh, he pastored a little church in Trowbridge, England. But he was so poor, partly because they had so many kids. And he kept blaming his wife for being so fruitful. <laughs> I kept thinking, you know, I think it takes two to tango here last, last time I checked. <laughs> but they'd have another kid and he'd write in his book, my wife's just too fruitful. <laughs> But they were always in the poorhouse, and all the schemes he tried to um, uh, come up with to uh, my wife, every time I think of some money-making scheme, she's always uh, uh, reminding me of John Warburton's pigs. He lived out on the commons around outside of Trowbridge, and the commons was the only land the common people owned. They owned it in common with everybody else, sort of like a city park. But they had uh, they could run their livestock out on the commons. So he got these piglets, and uh, he was he had this big plan. He was raising cabbages in his backyard, and he was going to raise these pigs and feed them his cabbages. And anyway, long story short, I can't. They uh, they broke into his pen where his cabbages was and rooted them all up. And he didn't have anything to feed them. Had to take them to the the market and sell them at a loss. And every time I think of some money making scheme, my wife reminds me of John Warburton's pigs. Uh, they, they struggled. Oh, my. You ought to read the story. If you ever see that book, get it. The Mercies of a Covenant God, John Warburton's story. And uh, just amazing story of a, a family that just eked. I mean eked by. And just on the very verge of financial disaster time and time and time again. Uh, that's the way it's been with a lot of God's choice servants in history. But, oh, my, if we could just see their state in heaven, the end result. And we would say, well, this psalm hadn't told the half. Their state's far more glorious than even what is described here. And so we might could say, not only is it not now, but this is later. It's not here. It's, it's in heaven. 
And then thirdly, you could say that this is a pretty good description of the righteous man as far as his spiritual state right now. I'm reminded of the hymn, It Is Well With My Soul, you know, Horatio Spafford, the story of losing his, wife, his, his girls, and, and uh, that even though in the midst of our trials and our, our want, our poverty, our disease, whatever it may be afflicting us, our soul, well, it's well with our soul. We're in good shape if you check us with a spiritual thermometer instead of a physical one. And so you could say, okay, this is spiritual rather than physical. It's later rather than now. It's heaven rather than earth. Anybody else? Have any other thing to add? All right, we're through. Well, anyway, uh, just notice that this man is being rewarded for his righteousness. Pretty clear. But we know from the rest of the Bible, where does the just man's righteousness come from? It comes from Christ. In other words, the rewards that we reap are really the rewards that Jesus earned. The inheritance that is ours is ours because we are co-heirs with Jesus Christ. Notice the many texts as we get into the New Testament about how we will reign with Him, how we will share in His glory We're told by Paul that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. This sort of gives us a clue. Did you hear that phrase, present time? The sufferings of this present time, the here and now, down here on planet earth, are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. That there is a treasure laid up in heaven. I, again, I, I doubt I'll get to say these things on when we cover this on Sunday. But it has long been my theory that perhaps this, this vast universe is the inheritance of the saints in glory. Because this universe is, well, just mind-boggling big. Far as we can tell, there's nobody else out there. It's just us here on the third rock from the sun. Why did God make it so big? Well, you say He made it so big to blow us away, to show us His power, His glory. Yeah, I know, but He could have made it a whole lot smaller and it's still blown us away. I've often wondered if that will not be the destiny of the saints. What I do know is that whatever I can conceive of will not Hold a candle to the reality when God glorifies his children. The princes of this world, the kings of this world do a pretty good job when they want to pull out all the stops, when they want to glorify their children. Think about when God, the sovereign of the universe, with all resources at his disposal, comes to the time when he glorifies his own children. What a day that will be. All right, any other? Uh, hey, I'm, that's about all I can say. I sat and scratched all afternoon over this. Listen, yes, ma'am? Well, I'm just wondering if you're saying that the 
<laughs> Thanks, Sue. Yeah. You and me, our time. Yes. Think about think about the phrases that that one. He'll not be afraid of um, the stability, stableness. Um, you realize how much of our hymns, you know, on Christ the solid rock, I stand, or how firm a foundation. Um, you're right. The old hymns emphasize that aspect of things that I may be uh, carried away physically. Uh, I may be being racked with uh, every wave of testing and trial I can think of, but my heart is fixed. My heart is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. You see the, the thing here, that this may not be our physical description now, but right now it's our spiritual description. Right now we are blessed with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Jesus Christ. Right now, you're filthy rich. You just don't have access to the account. (laughs) The bank account is in heaven. But right now, you've been blessed through Jesus Christ. There is that passage in Mark, I've mentioned it several times, where Peter, after hearing the rich young ruler go away, Sorrowful, last Jesus, what are we going to get? You just told this guy that if he'd follow you, he'd have treasures in heaven. Well, that's what we did. He didn't exactly say it just like that, but that's clearly what's on his mind. I'm glad Peter's blurred out this stuff because we wouldn't know half we know in the New Testament if it wasn't for Peter's big mouth. But he's wanting to know, hey, we walked away from everything. We left our nets. We left our fishing business. We left our homes to follow you. You just told this guy that if he would walk away from everything, he'd have treasures in heaven. What are we going to get? And it is in that context that Jesus describes, and in Mark's gospel says, in this life, you'll have a hundredfold more. You've left houses, lands, mothers, fathers, children, For my sake, you'll have a hundredfold more in this life and in the life to come, eternal life. So in other words, there's blessing now. And like I say, how often I've experienced that of people opening their homes to me and brothers and sisters all over the place. Uh, In other words, there's a present blessing that befalls us. But, oh, my, it won't hold a candle. In fact, he adds in Mark's gospel, you'll have it, you'll have this with tribulation. You'll have a hundredfold more with tribulation. And in the world to come, eternal life. So, all of the, you, you see the point. All of these things are true in the spiritual sense. Notice his righteousness described by stability on one hand, over and over again, every way, but also generosity, the fact that he lends, the fact that he gives um, several things here. He's gracious, it says in the last part of verse 4, full of compassion, that's mercy, and righteous. 
uh, notice that his character is being expressed. Shall we say that the righteous now have that character? Blessed are the merciful. They'll receive mercy. Those that forgive, they are forgiven. Okay, anyway. Any other any other comments? No? Do you suppose that part of hell will be the lost seeing what they've missed out on? That's what it sounds like here. The lost man gnashing his teeth at the fact that his enemy, the righteous man, is being blessed and he's not. Uh, Brother Victor Bernard. Now, you all have heard me talking about Roth Barnard. This is not Roth. It's no Ken. Victor Bernard was a brother to a fellow here in Memphis, Reginald Bernard. Do you all, know, y'all ever? What was it? Was he at Mid, Mid-America, I think, way back there? And uh, Victor, I never knew Reginald. Uh, Brother George McGinnis uh, was in his older, uh, Reginald's oldest, last years, uh, knew him. Uh, but I met his brother, Victor, one of the uh, most interesting men I've ever met. He was an Australian, and uh, we were in Wyoming, and he came through, this is about 1975, and uh, he was just curled up with arthritis. And he'd been all over the world. He had, he had preached in Australia. He had gone to India. And I remember he telling me the story about the night his daughter died, died in a hospital, and he had to ride a bicycle through a tiger-infested jungle trying to get to his daughter and didn't get there before she passed away. I mean, this was one of the old-time missionaries that didn't have it easy, wasn't, wasn't an easy life. And he was just all drawn up with arthritis. In fact, his wife, Winifred, helped him drive because he could drive as long as you're going straight down the highway. But if he had to turn, he couldn't, he couldn't make his arms turn. So she had to do the turns for him. I still will never forget, Linda and I stand out in our front yard there in Wyoming, watching them drive away down to the end. It was 75, so we weren't out on the ranch yet. We were still in town. And uh, watching them drive down to the end of the block, and she leaned over and turned the, turned the wheel for him so he could make the turn. All of that to say, when he was with us there in Wyoming, I still remember him making reference to an old English Bible that the way it translated the Beatitudes, you know, how we have blessed are the meek, blessed are the poor in spirit, used the word lucky. Lucky are the poor in spirit. Lucky are they that hunger and thirst after righteousness. And he stopped to explain. He said, I don't mean that, they didn't mean this is just pure luck, but what they're saying is from the standpoint of the wicked man, who is in hell, seeing the righteous man in heaven and sees no reason for it. Man, you're lucky. Gnashing his teeth. Now, we know it's not luck. It's grace. But we are no more deserving of the grace than if it were luck, are we? 
and the fact that the wicked man in hell knows the righteous, knows this one in heaven, was there when he sinned, was there sinning with him. And so the agony of the damned, exacerbated by the fact that the ones that were their sinning partners have found grace and have found mercy in the eyes of the Lord. They know they're not perfect. They know we're not worthy. And yet, from their perspective, for some reason, we're getting all this good stuff, blessing on blessing, piled on us while they are perishing. Interesting thought. I'll never forget that. Lucky or the poor in spirit. Yep. All right. Let's stop.